Hello, welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller, your ongoing host and interviewer. You also know me as the author of the Master Mentors series. Recently for HarperCollins, I authored my fifth book titled Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds. With the privilege and permission from 30 of our first guests, I wrote a fast, easy, breezy chapter about 30 of my favorite interviewees, things that I thought might transform your life. The book is available now on all major retailers, including both in audio, digital, print, and soon-to-be video. And I've just completed the manuscript for the follow-up book, Master Mentors Volume 3, featuring 30 new mentors on my way to 10 volumes in the series, just starting Master Mentors Volume 3. Pick up a copy. I think it's a great way to have some of the cream from the top of the milk, so to speak, on our series. Today, our guest is Chris Waddell. He is a fellow Utah native. I've known Chris for just shy of 15 years. He and I serendipitously went to a dinner party together 15 years ago and hadn't seen him since, heard about him, followed his career. And then, of course, our paths crossed today again for the second time on leadership. Uh, Chris is a Chris is the essence of what Dr. Covey calls be a light, not a judge. Be a model, not a critic. Chris is going to share his journey from a fairly traumatic experience and what it's like to take, you might say, colloquially lemons and turn them into lemonade. He is a, he's a transition figure. He is the essence of what some people would say when a disappointment turns into an appointment, what do you do with it? Chris Waddell, welcome to On Leadership. Scott, thanks so much. It's an absolute pleasure to join you again. Chris, you are an award-winning um, athlete. You are a recognized, multi-medal-winning Paralympian, and you've written this book called Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget. Small, powerfully packed. What I would like to do, Chris, is have you first set the stage with this trauma that you experienced. I call it a trauma because we've actually interviewed a fair number of psychiatrists and psychologists and brain scientists on this program. I am not one of those, but they've given uh, the vocabulary to me. Would you take us back several decades to a defining day in your life, and then we'll unpack what you've learned and what you can share for others from that? Sure, yeah, so December 20th of 1988, in some ways it's my second birthday. And, and uh, so I was a ski racer in college. I started ski racing when I was six years old, grew up in Western Massachusetts at a place called Mount Tom originally, 680 feet of vertical. So like half the height of the Empire State Building, not huge. And then moved to a place called Berkshire East, which was about a thousand feet of vertical. So a little bit bigger. And I was in college at Middlebury College, uh, ski racing on the team there came home. And when you come home, you go to your, the mountain where you'd grown up. So came home, went back to Berkshire East with my brother, met up with a few friends. Berkshire East is often a really uh, firm, icy place. Uh, but uh, at least at the time it was, I think the snow is better now, but, uh, but it was warm and sunny that day and just warmed up. We were, I was searching for that feeling. So much of ski racing is the feeling of of everything working in concert. And so I was searching for that feeling and kind of made a turn, went over a knoll and made another turn and my ski popped off in the middle of a turn, fell in the middle of the trail, didn't hit anything but the ground and broke two vertebrae. And, you know, essentially was paralyzed from the waist down or really from the belly button down at that time. And 
you know, that's where my life changed significantly. That's where I call it a, a second birthday in some ways. I mean, in some ways it's kind of like the Phoenix rising or whatever, you know, these are the stories that, that we have to tell about our own, own, own lives, I guess, in some ways. So, so yeah, that's where it started. Chris, there's so much to unpack there. You said it very fast, but you were enrolled at Middlebury, Middlebury College. This is not a this is not an unknown school. I mean, this is one of the most prestigious colleges or universities in the nation. You obviously were very academic inclined. You were obviously athletically inclined. Uh, your paralysis continues decades later, correct? Despite a tremendous dedication to rehabilitation, to alternative therapies. Before we get into some of the lessons learned from your experience, talk about the, the journey of recovery and the things you did, perhaps even unconventionally, to, to rehabilitate yourself. You know what's interesting, Scott, is that I think we all feel that we have like a, a superpower within us, or you know, it's like a, a power that we've never been able to tap into. And, and for me, that was definitely the case as I was going through high school and starting college and all of that, that it's like, how do I get to that me that is really the most powerful, the most unique, the least filtered part of myself? And, and, and obviously, like, as I was preparing for to ski in school, I was trying to, I was trying to tap into that. You know, so a lot of my training in school, dry land training before the ski season started, was about wanting to push myself to the point that I want that I wanted to quit because I was trying to do something that I that I didn't really know if I was going to be able to do but if I pushed myself to that point and then went just even a little bit beyond it it was creating a bit of a new narrative I had no idea that I was preparing for something that was far bigger than I could have imagined so when I broke my back in a lot of ways it was the most powerful that I've ever been in my life part of that was that I had to recover. You know, my life was either black and white, something would help me get better or it wouldn't. But the other part of it is that the only thing that I could control was the only things I could control were really my thoughts and my emotions. And you're hit with this trauma and you think, okay, this trauma means that you're going directly into depression, you're, you're, the frustration, all of these things. But those were not things that would give my body the best environment to be able to heal. And so I had to control what I could control. And, and I call it, I call it realizing possible. And we, we all have big goals, right? The big goals. And when I get to that big goal, it's going to, it's going to all be great. But realizing possible is winning that battle with yourself in the moment, the uh, resisting the urge to panic, the, urge to quit, to give in to frustration, to say, okay, I'm, I'm in this battle. And part of, part of being successful is just continuing to be in this battle, to give myself the opportunity. And, and it really was the most powerful that I've ever been in my life. And I, and I look back on it and what's interesting about that, I think Scott, and useful for all of us is that we have these moments in our lives and Sometimes we're really great and we have to remember when we were really great because it's much harder to get back to that. This is kind of like when I was ski racing, when you're journaling and you have a great day and you're like, okay, how can I recreate that? How can I get back to that point? This realizing possible is, is remembering that that is a skill, a power that I have and knowing that 
I need to find that way to get out of my own way and, and to realize this sense of possible, to realize being in that moment and being willing to battle in that moment. And that's what came out of my recovery. I was in the hospital for two months and then went back to, went back to college, went back to Middlebury, which is almost a 200 year old school, or at that point was almost a 200 year old school, built mostly out of granite on the top of a hill in Northern Vermont in the middle of February in a wheelchair, right? So not exactly, I mean, when I look at it logically, that seems like a crazy decision to make, but it was the greatest decision I could have made because I returned to my peers, I returned to my life, and then really figured, had to figure out how to adapt to that new life. Chris, I want to spend time talking about your successes post the traumatic event on the mountain but you spent a considerable amount of time pursuing alternative therapies and there's been lots of innovation and, and science and things that have progressed. This, this happened, gosh, what, how many years ago? 33, 33 30, plus years ago. 33 years ago, you still have paralysis from your waist area down. You, you live, you, you're mobile in a wheelchair. Uh, what, has, what has happened since then? Have you had some movement? Have you had any kind of uh, breakthroughs at all? What's happened in terms of the science that's affected the type of paralysis you have? It, it, it's an interesting question, Scott. It really is. And, and yeah, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's one of the big questions, especially that you have initially, right? Because the only way to recover is to walk, right? That, that you break your arm, you're in a cast, take the cast off, your arm is fine, right? I mean, that's kind of the association. And this doesn't work exactly that way. There are and have been some progressions with like some electrical stim and, and a variety of different things that are that are working. You've seen some people like in exoskeletons and things like that. But I think that, that it gets to be a much bigger question of like, what is the definition of recovery? Is the definition of recovery walking? Is that the only way that we can define recovery or is it really about you know i mean it, it we we do things in different ways like my foundation we have we have a mo we have a motto that is it's not what happens to you it's what you do with what happens to you which is intentionally universal because it is about the human condition no matter who we are things are going to go wrong and we kind of have these diametrically opposed desires right to be successful on one side and to learn and grow and dream and never really grow old on the other side and and they're diametrically opposed and the problem is that oftentimes we think we want to be successful and if it doesn't work out exactly the way that we planned it for it to work out, then we have this emotional problem that we look at and go, oh, well, I've failed. I've failed in the way. Whereas if we're looking at it on the other side, where it's the learning and growing and dreaming, it is this sort of snaking through our, our dreams, our desires, our motivations to, to actually find that same route. It might not be a straight line, but few of these things really are straight lines and so so looking at it for me the sense of recovery was was being able to have dreams and the ability to to chase them being healthy and happy and and, and fulfilled in that in that motivation of of chasing those dreams and knowing that as a human being I'm growing the the goals and the dreams are really the thing that are helping me to grow as a person and, and the things that go wrong, 
I have to be able to look at those in a way and say, okay, those are the necessary obstacles to continue to push me as opposed to this is a failure that means that I am a failure, that means that I should quit and that I should stop. And, and you know, I mean, it, it's just a bit of a shift in perspective that allows me to continue to be empowered and move forward, especially chasing things that are difficult. Well, it's a, it's a profound response to my question. It's, a, it's a, maybe a small shift in perspective with massive consequences. My question to you was, you know, basically, will you ever walk again? And you kind of said to me, well, I'm not sure that's the right question because your point that's metaphorical and literal is, is the only recovery from paralysis than to walk again. And you've reframed that entire conversation to ask everybody, you know, if something has happened to you that is challenging or traumatic or different than what you hoped it is, is the only way to recover from that or to pursue your next steps, recreating that or rediscovering that or doing what you thought it was. I think it's an interesting uh, mindset shift for all of us. All of us. Chris, uh, up until me meeting you, I would have probably viewed the Paralympics differently, but you really educated me. First of all, I probably would have called it the Paralympics, when in fact you said to me there's a nuance there in its pronunciation that helps to actually educate people on the role that Paralympics plays in the world. You are a 12-time winning Paralympian. Would you take a couple of moments and, and, and talk about the pronunciation and the spelling of that and why it's different for the world to understand what role the Paralympics play with the Olympics? So, so Paralympics is P-A-R-A-L-Y-M-P-I-C-S. So there's no O in it. It's not almost the Olympics. It's actually parallel to the Olympics. What became the Paralympics started as the Stoke Mandeville Games back in 1948. So there were 12 years in between Berlin in 1936 and then the London Games in 1948. And the Stoke Mandeville is about an hour north of London. It was a hospital. A guy named Sir Ludwig Gutmann was a doctor there, a neurologist there. And a lot of, it was, it was basically, it was, para, it was paraplegics at the time that were in these games. But a lot of these guys, they were, they were coming back from the war. They were lying in bed. Like 80% of them didn't live longer than three years. And Gutmann thought that, getting people active would help them be healthier, would increase their lifespan, et cetera, et cetera. And so they started the games that eventually became the Paralympics, which literally is parallel to the Olympics because it started the Stoke Mandeville Games started the same day that the London Olympics started back in 1948. So it's a it's it's a parallel path. It's not it's not sort of almost there. It's like this is this is what we're trying to do as human beings. We're trying to, these games are about competing on the very highest level, about summoning as much power as you possibly can from yourself through training, through experience, through coaching, through failure to get to that point where you do something that is absolutely spectacular. And as an audience, what I love as an audience is that we sit there on the couch and we go, we did that. We're watching on the couch. We're seeing it on television. We did that. And what it means is that we as human beings did that. These are people who are showing what impossible, both Olympians and Paralympians, what we thought was impossible. They're making it possible and getting to experience, getting to watch it makes us feel like, hey, we are part of it because I am on this human journey as well. And to me, that's the greatest thing that we can do is, is have that ability to learn 
from each other. If we're having to learn all of our lessons solely on our own experience, it's going to take a really long time to learn most things. But if we're able to, to sort of level up by watching other people and learning from their experiences, we're in a far greater place. And that to me is what the Olympics and what the Paralympics is all about is, you know, that, I mean, how often do we say something's impossible? And it's entirely true until somebody does it. And yeah. we see somebody do it and we're like, okay, what do I think is impossible? And is that empowering me to go chase that thing that I think is impossible? Chris, free educate me and our audience members. Every Olympics, summer and winter, always has a Paralympics that follows, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. And are they always, is there always like a two or three week uh, space in between? G- give us a little bit of idea of what to expect in terms of those two as they, as they connect. It is, it is two, is generally two weeks in between the Olympics and the Paralympics. I mean, basically it's sort of, it's at the same, same city, same venues, has been since Seoul in 1988, has been at the same venue, same city and same venues, which is really cool. I mean, it's really cool that, that as a Paralympian, you get to watch it on television beforehand and go, oh, okay. I wonder what that's going to be like when I get there, because obviously television doesn't tell the whole story, but you get to you get to see a lot of the story. So, yes, it is the same same city, same venue, generally two weeks in between. And so, yeah, that's that's the cool part for me is is sharing that space, which being that Olympic space, being that that highest ideal of what sport, you know, coming from the Greeks kind of thing to to share that same space. And and the funny thing oftentimes, Scott, is that there's that same feeling from the Olympians that there is from the Paralympians, where whereas a Paralympian, I feel like I'm looking up to the people in, in the Olympics that who are my heroes. But then we get that exact corresponding response from the people in the Olympics, like, oh man, this is amazing what you're doing. And, and, and I want to, I want to watch it. I want to be a part of it. So that's, that's really the coolest part that we get to share a space and we get to share a purpose. Chris, talk quickly about the type of sport you compete in called mono skiing. And I believe you educated me that there's three types of that, which is just sort of mind blowing to understand the Herculean efforts these Paralympians go into to compete Educate us a bit on that. Sure. So I, I ski in what's called a mono ski. So mono meaning one. So I have one ski. It's essentially a seat that is built onto onto a ski. And and I guess I'm not giving it its true due by saying it's a seat. It's almost like taking a motorcycle frame because the shock is a huge part of it. So it's a motorcycle frame minus the motor, minus the wheels, minus the handlebars. But it's this scissor type frame that has a shock absorber, knees, hips and ankles, right? We need we need to replicate that as best we can or else it's a really, really miserably, miserably uh, bumpy ride. And uh, so so we do that and, and have little outriggers in our hands. It basically it's where I forget that I'm sitting down. The feeling of making a turn is probably one of the most intoxicating things in sport. I mean, it's just the feeling of getting that ski and using that ski and making that turn and and going through and pulling G's and and all these things in the turn is something that is just absolutely spectacular and keeps you coming back to it. There are three classes in the Paralympics. There's sitting, standing and visually impaired. Mono skiing is the sitting class. There are actually subclasses within that, not to get into too much minutia, but there are a variety of different classes that are all based on level of lesion in the monoski classes. So depending, 
each vertebrae, whichever vertebrae you break, determines a level of sensation and a level of function. And, and really, it's trying to level that playing field. So there's a there's what we call a factor system, which is kind of like a golf handicap, essentially. It's a it's a it's an established standard for historically standard, uh, historically established standard for each class that allows that class, the people in that class to compete on a on an even par with people in the other class is is the intention. And so so yes, so sitting, standing and blind, uh, there is that factor system for all of them. And and the intention is to be the fastest person in in the day. And so yeah, I won 12 winter Paralympic medals and actually won one summer Paralympic medal. I raced wheelchairs in the summer, our version of running. So racing wheelchairs, people will have seen it probably from like the Boston Marathon, from the New York Marathon, maybe Chicago, one of those things where you see the racing wheelchairs about six feet long with, you know, 700 C wheels in the in the back and one little 20 inch wheel in the front sort of looks like a dragster. Uh, so, so yes, those are my two sports and I continue to get out there and and ski for fun. Chris, with enormous deference and respect to the sight-impaired community, how does someone ski down a mountain in the Paralympics with a sight impairment? So there, there are three classes of visually impaired athletes within that visually impaired subclass. The first one is what we would call blind, people who literally have their goggles taped up so there's no perception of light or anything. That's that's one class. The next class is, is I think, 201200, uh, meaning that they see at 20 feet what we would see at 1200 feet. Uh, and then and then the other is, I think, 2400 or something like that. Uh, these athletes will ski with a guide. So with the people who are completely blind, they it, it is it is a either a speaker system or some microphones that are then hooked up with the helmet where the guide can communicate and say left, 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 right, 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 left, left. And, and I mean, you talk about, you talk about trust. You talk about, because this person is effectively your eyes, right? You are trying to, that, that you are trusting, one, their judgment, and, and two, that they're seeing and telling you what they are seeing. And, and so it is, it is the one that blows me away just because performing in space physically when you're unsure of what you're seeing is really hard. Just think about what we all do. If we're not seeing something, our tendency is sort of to, to, to be less assertive, less aggressive, which is really hard when you're actually competing. And, and so to watch some of these athletes who are, who are really strong and have dynamic movement from turn to turn, as opposed to just kind of like sitting back and hoping for the best. I mean, it is, it is the thing that really blows you, blows you away how people are able to perform as athletes when they can't see. Most of us, when the light gets flat, when it gets foggy or snowy or something, we think, okay, maybe it's time to go in. That's the baseline for a lot of these athletes incomprehensible, but you did it justice. Thank you for representing those Paralympians. Your book, Chris, is titled Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget. And you take that a bit further. At the end of one of your chapters, you say, I want to remember not to forget that it's not what happens to me, it's what I do with what happens to me. Sounds like a bit of a cliche, but most of us could no doubt live our lives better aligned with that. Why is that phrase so passionate 
for you? The, it's not what happens to me, it's what I do with what happens to me is central to me. I mean, and it's easy to say, well, that is a result of having had a traumatic incident in your life. It really isn't. It really is part of being a ski racer. Growing up as a ski racer, I grew up in, in Massachusetts, right? So there were, there were a fair number of races that I got to compete in the rain. And you think either I hate the rain or I love the rain. And if I love the rain, there might be a chance that I could beat somebody that I've never beaten before. And when you beat somebody that you've never beaten before, sometimes that actually settles in and you think, oh, I might actually be able to beat this person again. It wasn't just a product of the conditions or the weather or whatever it is. And, and to me, it's the people who are always, who are the people I look up to were the ones that could perform in any situation, could perform when things were most difficult, because it's really easy to have our excuses, to have our excuses of, oh, well, I failed because of this. Well, the people who are really good are the ones that you don't even notice that the conditions are really bad. And I think that that's ultimately what happens in life as well, is that it's, we're really good at feeling sorry for ourselves. We're really good at giving ourselves an excuse, a reason a reason why we can't. And this idea of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you is, is just factoring in the sense of things are going to go wrong. And, and, and the best people, the ones that, the people that I always want to talk to are the things, who, the people who've had to, <clears throat> had to meet the biggest challenges, the biggest tragedies in their lives and have come out. I mean, we're partially a voyeur, right? That we say, oh, what happened to you? I want to know what happened to you. But then the next question is, well, what did you do? And the question of what did you do to me is like, okay, this is where I can learn from, from your story. This is where I can get better. And the people who've had to, had to meet the greatest adversity are the ones who have the greatest stories to tell and the greatest lessons to teach. And so that's where I'm trying to remember that it's, yeah, it's not what happens to you. It's what you do is what happens to you because it can be really easy to remember the I can't believe this happened to me. It's like, okay, no, hold on. There's a second part of that. And it's what I do with it. Well, Chris, to reinforce that point, would you share the story about your encounter with the young girl that saw you coming out of your truck and how that story relates to this point? Because I want to drive this home because I'm thinking as I'm listening to you about um, all the things that have happened to me in life. And I've actually, compared to many, lived a fairly charmed life, hardworking but charmed life, and have not experienced, by most standards, any trauma in my life. Doesn't mean I won't at some point, but your points on this are helping to shape my mindset. Recreate the story with the young girl. So yes, yeah, so this young girl, so I just returned from Tibet. I was there for two weeks. It's actually when I had decided that I was going to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, which was a you know conspiracy against me, I guess, in some ways caused by uh, caused by jet lag and Chinese television. And so I was writing in my journal and said, okay, I'd had this idea. I was going to climb Kilimanjaro. And now this is sort of the idea of like, put your money where your mouth is and make it happen as opposed to looking for somebody else to make it happen. I returned home from Tibet. It took a long time to get home, you know, 16 hours driving over bumpy dirt roads, flew from China halfway across the world, landed at home. I wanted to see what I missed. So I drove from the airport to my mailbox which is not in front of my house. It's one of those collective mailboxes at the end of the street. So I drove to my mailbox, parked my car, started pulling my wheelchair out, putting the wheels on. And this little girl rode up and she was like six years old on her little pink bike, pink streamers coming off the handlebars. And she said, 
what happened to your legs? I mean, this is just the honesty of a six-year-old. And, you know, I didn't really feel like having this conversation. I was tired, but from the time we're little, we were told not to stare at someone who looks different. It's impolite to stare. But the problem is if we don't get a chance to ask questions, we don't get the chance to know somebody who seemingly is different from us. And so I felt like I had to tell her my story as best I could because there are 1.2 billion people in the world, 15% of the population like me with physical disabilities, but in a lot of ways they're invisible because from the time we're little, we're taught not to stare. And if we don't get a chance to stare, we don't get a chance to actually see these people. And so I told her that I was a ski racer and all this stuff and everything. and 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 try to describe what happened to me in ways that I thought she might be able to understand it. You know, I said, those little bumps on your back, those are bones and those bones protect the nerves and the nerves take the message from the brain to the rest of the body. So if I want my arm to move, my brain says move and muscle go, or the message goes along those nerves, the muscles in my arm, my arm moves. But because I broke two of those bones, it's like cutting a power cord. So now the message doesn't go from my brain to my legs to my legs back. I didn't know how well I was doing. But apparently I was doing pretty well. She said, so you'll never walk again. And I said, no, probably not. And she rode away. And as she rode away, she said, well, that's too bad. I mean, with all the compassion of a six-year-old, she said, that's too bad. And, and you know, I, I, I wish that I had stopped her. I mean, I wish that I had stopped her because if I'd never had my accident, I never would have experienced being the best in the world at anything. I mean, I became the fastest mono skier in the world in 1994, I won the downhill. I was in the most disabled of the three classes of mono skiers and I beat everybody. I beat guys who walked up and sat down and, and got in their skis and I beat all these guys. And I never would have had that experience if I hadn't had my accident. And so that's this whole idea of it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And, Oftentimes, I mean, the, the Dalai Lama said that sometimes not getting what you want can be the greatest gift of all. And we think we have a great plan of the way that things are supposed to go. But sometimes when it doesn't go that way, we are able to reveal ourselves to ourselves. And that was that was a huge gift for me and one that that I'd love to be able to reconnect with that little girl and, and see if I could uh, if I could actually communicate that hey, it really can be a gift. Chris, this is why you are in such demand keynoting around the nation and the world because I find myself to be a fairly nimble thinker, thinker but I've learned a lot from you in just the last 30 minutes. Uh, oh, and by the way, you mentioned the word Mount Kilimanjaro. So why don't you take us there on that interesting trip and the things that happened along the way that maybe helped you to accomplish your goal or perhaps even reset your goal on the mountain? Yeah, so Kilimanjaro was a really interesting idea. I was, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. When I was in the hospital, I was just about to leave and go back to college. And the head doctor called me into his office and he said, you're not ready to leave. And I said, well, why not? And he said, because you haven't been depressed. And I kind of thought I was doing well not being depressed, right? This whole idea of realizing possible, like, this is it. I can't give in because if I give in, maybe this world that I see in the hospital will be my existence moving forward. And that was petrifying for me to, to not think that I could do whatever I wanted to do. But after I retired from competitive sport, it was the most challenging thing that I have ever done in my life. My identity was more challenged by retiring from competitive sport than it was breaking my back, losing my ability to walk. 
I didn't know who I was afterwards. I had a resume that said I had done certain things, but I didn't know who I was. And in some ways I felt jilted by my passion. My passion had, had brought me to the success that I had, but I felt like after I retired that nobody really seemed to care. And it was a matter of starting over. And, and I actually cut myself off from this greatest power, this power that I had seen in myself when I was in the hospital. I didn't want to, I didn't want to indulge in it. I didn't want to say, no, I have to win that battle with myself, that moment with myself. And I actually was depressed. And I went out one day in my off-road hand cycle, a one-off hand cycle, and I three-wheeled hand cycle that sort of looks like a you know, it sort of looks like a Mars Rover in some ways married to arm pedal power. Uh, and, and so had uh, arm pedals and I, I sat in a position where I was kind of like in a canoeing position almost where I was kneeling and I leaned forward and had this little pad that allowed me, that kept me upright so I could pedal, but also by leaning left and right on this pad, I could turn the front wheels so I could do single tracks. So I rode up this, up this trail here in Round Valley in Park City and it took me about an hour or so. And then I turned and I went down. And as I'm going down, this thought, my subconscious, right? This thought like tapped me on the shoulder and basically said, you need to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. And I'm, you know, I feel like I'm kind of looking around going, well, where did this thought come from? Like what, I've never, I'd never considered it. I'd heard of Mount Kilimanjaro, but when I took a step back, the idea of climbing a 19,340 foot mountain was really similar to what I was trying to do as an athlete. It gave me a platform to make a statement about 1.2 billion people in the world with disabilities that, that maybe it's not, oh, that's too bad. It's what do you do? But also a statement about who we are as human beings, because we're all Sisyphus, right? We're all pushing our pushing our boulder up the mountain. And, and it's it's a struggle every single day. What do we share? We share that struggle. And some people struggle better than others. My goal in climbing the mountain was to be the first unassisted paraplegic to make it to the summit of Kilimanjaro. And it's kind of funny because there was a part that was that I was not able to do. There were these boulders just below Gilman's Point, which is about 18,500 feet. Then I couldn't get over these boulders. My crew and the porters, they carried me over these boulders. And I had had a bit of an idea that I wanted to find a way to Maybe I wouldn't be completely independent, but sometimes like getting onto an airplane, I'll get out of my chair and do a wheelbarrow where I'll have somebody grab my ankles and I will, I'll walk on my hands up, up, up stairs into an airplane. And I thought, okay, I can do this over these boulders. I will do that. It will be a struggle. It won't be independent, but it'll be, it'll be similar. And I didn't mention that when these guys started making plans to carry me. And I had to look back on it years later and say, why didn't I say that? Why didn't I, why didn't I mention my idea? And I had two diametrically opposed desires. One I think was to, to show that I could do whatever I decided I wanted to do, that I was a superhero. But the other part was to free myself from the burden of being a superhero. Superhero is a two dimensional being, right? It's like, it's like acting, it's playing a role. It is, what am I supposed to do? What do these people expect from me? How can I give them what they need? And it didn't allow me to struggle. It didn't allow me to, to be honest, to be vulnerable, to show who I really was and to continue to learn. 
And, and so I think in a lot of ways, the 100 feet that they carried me was probably the greatest gift that I'd experienced because it allowed me to divest myself from that superhero image, to be human. And that struggle, my struggle the first five days on the mountain empowered my team to join that struggle. They wanted to be a part of it because they saw me struggling along and they wanted to be there to help and to struggle themselves. And sometimes that is the most empowering thing that we can do for our team, that we can do for ourselves is to, is to be willing to struggle and to let other people join that struggle. And the greatest takeaway is that no one climbs a mountain alone, uh, you know, whether real or metaphorical. So that was my that was my experience on Kilimanjaro. And we did make it to the top the next day to the top of the tallest mountain in, in Africa, what they call the roof of Africa. Chris, I'm rarely without words, but I'm sort of speechless just thinking about your perseverance, your abundance mentality, your understanding of interdependence and independence. Uh, what's next for you, sir? What's next? I think a big part of it for me is continuing to tell this story. The mission of my foundation is to turn perception of disability upside down. And, and that's the literal disability people, the 1.2 billion people in the world. But I think to turn disability in general upside down, the reasons that, that we say, I can't do this, right? To turn that upside down and go, okay, maybe I approach the, the problem in a little bit different way. So one of the things I'm working on right now is a television show called Chris Whitehall Living It. And it's an expert with a disability who teaches an adventure to an able-bodied person. So we are flipping that paradigm and we're getting to learn in a way that we wouldn't necessarily learn. And we're getting to learn from an expert that in a lot of ways society doesn't necessarily see as an expert. And we get to see experts and we get to see people who are learning in an entirely different way. So this is this is my pet project and I'm keeping my fingers crossed. We've had some good discussions and I'm hoping that we get a chance to do it. And yeah, so I will do that and I will continue to do uh, commentary for the Paralympics, uh, uh, both skiing and track and field during the summer, uh, opening and closing ceremonies and hosting some of the Paralympics. So I'm hoping that uh, hoping that I continue to uh, to move into that role where I can continue to tell a story and help tell a story that, that really is the one that the athletes, the way that they see themselves. Chris Waddell, Paralympian, author of the book, Things I Want to Remember Not to Forget, commentator, keynote speaker, and future reality series star. Thank you for your time today on Leadership. You're welcome. Thank you, Scott. It's been a pleasure. My honor, my friend. And we'll see you back here next week with a new conversation on leadership. <music>